Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Good morning. Uh, I'm grateful to get to bring God's word to you today. If you have a Bible... Would you please turn in it with me to Acts chapter 16? If you don't have a Bible, there might be one in the pew in front of you. The person next to you probably has one, or the scriptures will be on the screen. So wherever you're at on the spectrum, we got you covered. Uh, this chapter this morning, it tells the story of how the Philippian church was born. And it all starts with God saying no. And so I've titled my sermon this morning, if you are a note taker, Why It's Good When God Says No. Uh, planning for this, uh, I loved that movie, The Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory growing up, not the Johnny Depp version, the real version with Gene Wilder. Uh, and I kept thinking of Veruca Salt. Do you remember, like, she's the spoiled girl who her dad's the used car salesman. I think that's him, never tells her no. And uh, they get to the, the Golden Goose factory room in the Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And she gets there and she goes, Daddy, I want a golden goose. And he goes, all right, sweetheart, let me get you one. My, my impressions are stellar, I know. <laughs> and uh, so he goes to ask Wonka and Wonka says, they're not for sale. And she goes, who says I can't have one? And it like ushers in her awesome tantrum of a song, don't care how, I want it now. And it culminates with her going and standing on top of the egg decator, making the stand saying, I want it now. And then it determines that she's a bad egg and she drops through down to the furnace and that's the end of Veruca Salt. I kept thinking of that this whole time because when we hear no, our inner Veruca Salt comes out. Like, how dare you tell me no, anyone in this room or anyone in my life, or even God, how dare you tell me no? But we fail to see that oftentimes it's so good that God says no to us because we're gonna hash this out at the end, but God's no is the soil through which a yes begins to grow, a better yes than we have ever anticipated. And so what I want us to do this morning, we're going to take chapter 16, section by section, um, because I want this story to unfold, and, and there are going to be things for you to write down, but if you're a note taker, I just want to challenge you to do one thing. Write down everything good that happens because God says no. Because oftentimes we don't see God's no as a good thing, but I want us to be able to adjust our sight a little bit this morning with the aid of God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And hopefully that will stir us to worship, even when God says things that cut against what we want. So Acts chapter 16, before we get in, let me pray once more, and then we'll dive into this together. God, we are here to encounter you in all that you are. So Father, open our eyes to behold the wondrous things from your word. Holy Spirit, would you unstop our ears to hear what you would speak to this church at this time and place. Tether our minds to be present here with you, Jesus. Open our hearts to hear and believe just like you did with Lydia, with the jailer, and others in Philippi all throughout history to today. Jesus, we want you to be glorified, so it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Acts chapter 16, we're going to start reading in verse 6. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which was a leading city in the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. This is the word of the Lord. We are picking up our story by joining the Apostle Paul. He's just set off on his second missionary journey, and he sets out with a new ministry partner, a man named Silas. If you want to know about Silas, he's talked about in chapter 15. He's referred to as a leader among the believers in the Jerusalem church, and he's a prophet who encourages and strengthens other people. And when Paul and Silas set out, they get to this region of Derby and Lystra, and they meet a young man named Timothy. And Paul takes Timothy under his wing as a disciple, and he joins them as a companion on their journey. And lastly, we have Luke. Luke is the physician and the author of the book of Acts who traveled with them. He even inserts himself into the story as part of the party in verse 10, saying, immediately we sought to go, concluding that God has called us. Now, this section is often called the Macedonian call. Even in your Bible, it probably says in the subheading, the Macedonian call. But in my Bible, I've written in the margin why it's good when God says no. Because you see, Paul and his missionary team are headed to Asia Minor to preach the gospel in Asia Minor. But verse 6 tells us that God the Holy Spirit forbids them from speaking the gospel there. Put it another way, God tells them no. And so Paul goes, okay, I can't go that way. I'm instead going to go through Asia Minor and bring the gospel up to Bithynia. If you look at the map, uh, that really janky purple line is our quest today. They begin to go through Asia Minor, and as they hit Asia Minor, that's when the Holy Spirit says no. And so Paul pivots and goes, fine, I'm going to go north. I'm going to go up to Bithynia. And as he makes his way north, we then read that Jesus shows up and says, you're not allowed to go into Bithynia. Again, God says no. Twice along this journey, God disrupts Paul's plans. Plans which by any metric are good plans. I mean, he's attempting to do God's will. He's living into the great commission given by Jesus in Matthew 28 of going into all nations to make disciples. The aim of this missionary journey is to bring the gospel into a new region of the Middle East, particularly in Asia Minor. He's doubling, almost tripling the distance that he went from his previous missionary journey. And yet, a peculiar detail of our story emerges. God not only forbids them to speak in one region, he out and out denies them entry into another. And so for us, as students of this story and students of the word, followers of Jesus, we're meant to come to this and ask one question. 
Why? Like, why would God say no to this? Why would God stop their mouths when all they wanted to do to pre- was preach the gospel in Asia Minor? Why would God halt their path when all they wanted to do was walk in the words of Isaiah 52 by bringing, being beautiful feet of those who bring good news and proclaim the peace and salvation of God to those in Bithynia? That question is answered for us in verses 8 and 9. You see, when God says no, Paul resolves to keep on going until he reaches the other side of Asia Minor. When God says no, he goes, I'm going to go back to the last thing where I heard God say yes. God told me just to go into Asia Minor. And though he's prevented me from preaching the gospel, though he's prevented me from going north into Bithynia, I'm going to keep walking faithfully in the last thing I heard him say. And he concludes that God will lead them to who and where he wants them to be. He trusts that God will provide what they need when they need it. And so here you have Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, continuing on in their journey until they get to Troas. Now it's hard to see, but Troas is the far further westernmost part of Asia Minor, right where the continent meets the sea. They fulfill their brief. This was the point of the map that marked the end of their journey. By all intents and purposes, it's now time for them to go home to Jerusalem and declare, hey, we did what we, we were supposed to do, but God told us not to say anything. But that's not how their story unfolds. Instead of turning around to go home, it's there in Troas where Paul gets a vision of a Macedonian man begging for help. Now, it's right here where I, I want to pause for a few minutes because there, there, I see three different threads that are all hanging from this word vision, and I want to pull at them a little bit with you. Thread one has to do with the way God communicates to people. Now, undeniably, there are constants. There are recurring fundamental ways that God speaks. It'll be on the screen right there. God speaks primarily through his word, through scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God also speaks by his Holy Spirit. We see this in John 14, 26, when even Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will bring to remembrance, he will speak and lead you into all truth that I've spoken to you. God speaks through scripture, through the Holy Spirit. He speaks through prayer. Prayer is not this this encounter where we come to God, dump all of our stuff on him, and then go, okay, cool, I'll see you in a week, or I'll see you in a few days. It's a a space where we sit and we talk with God and we listen. Jeremiah 33.3 says, God speaking, call unto me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and unsearchable things that you do not yet know. That's God inviting his people to pray. That's God saying, I dare you to come to me and see if I'll talk to you. Fourthly, God speaks through his people. We read about this in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the whole chapter. If you want to read that later, I'm not going to try to sum, sum that up. But we see people speaking in, in prophecy and gifts of tongues and interpretations, offering words of wisdom and words of knowledge. This is God speaking through his people for the edification, the building up of his people. These are constants, the, ways that, the, the fixed ways that God communicates. But in this story, we also see that at times, God speaks through closed doors 
and visions or dreams. What makes these a bit different is that these are intermittent, meaning these aren't constant and foundational ways that God always speaks to all people in all places. We read about the closed door in verse 7. They were walking in obedience to what God had said, and what altered their direction, what halted their progress was God saying, no, no, no. God interrupting and closing a door so that they had to stop and wait on God again to say, which way are we going? Then we have visions and dreams. This is what Peter prophesied in Acts 2.17 in his Pentecost sermon. These visions and dreams are a direct fulfillment of what Joel 2.28 through 32 says, where he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. These happen, but they are not constant. Not everyone hears a word from God or sees a vision or even dreams a dream. But what is clear to us, both from Scripture and throughout church history, is that the ways in which God communicates to us are almost as unique as each person is. The way that God talks to you is different than the way God talks to me because we are different people. The constants remain of his word, the Holy Spirit, prayer, and people But God may speak to you in your life through closed doors as you walk by faith. God may speak to you through visions or dreams. God may give a word to somebody to tell you something that only you and God know about. Those things happen as a means of God's common grace toward people, but they're not fixed, constant ways that he speaks. But what we do know is that whenever God speaks, by whatever means that he speaks, He will always speak in a way that is consistent with Scripture and compatible with his character. And he always speaks to bring about his purposes and his kingdom. Now, I say that because we live in an age and an era where a lot of people go, well, God told me. And that's like the trump card for a lot of things. Like, I'm going to go do this or I'm going to do this. Well, I don't think you should. Hey, God told me. And that's like the the universal get off my back card. But if we're going to, lean into what it means to be followers of Jesus and understand the way that God speaks. It's always consistent with Scripture and compatible with his character. If those words go against those, then we have not even the right but the obligation and the joyful privilege to come alongside each other and go, hey, man, that's not how it works. And that's a hard thing, but it's a beautiful thing because that's what it means to be invited into the family of God. We have responsibility with each other. This is what community is. Not correcting each other, and it's all about being right. It's about helping each other flourish in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So that was what I want, I want to pull on that first thread of just what that idea of vision means and how God speaks. The second thread I want to pull on is the way that Paul and his crew determine that this vision really is God's leading. See, when, when this vision comes... Paul seeks out the spiritual counsel and involvement of others. We know that from the word concluded in verse 10. That's a word of communal discernment. They concluded that God was calling them to go and preach in Macedonia. Now, I like this because verse 10 is like an intentional juxtaposition by Luke. And it's found in the words, go and preach. In verse 10, Paul gets a vision, and he comes together with his, with his crew, and they're like, what is God calling us to do? 
They wait on the Lord. They discern that it's God calling us to go and preach the very two things that they were prevented from doing at the start of this story. They wanted to go into Asia Minor and preach, and God told them no. Paul said, I'm going to go into Bithynia then, and God said no. God was instead calling them to go and preach in Macedonia rather than continue in Asia Minor or go into Bithynia. And the reason why this is so important is because this is the first time in history that the gospel was going to be brought to Europe. And they discerned that in community. The third thing I want to pull out with that word uh, vision before we move on is that in the vision, the man only said, simply said, come help us. That is the most vague request ever. Like what, what sort of help is he asking for in his community? There's no indication in the text. They have no idea either. However, knowing this story, that it is the story of how the Philippian church was born, we can conclude that to God, help for a community is administered through local churches being planted and those churches serving the spiritual and practical needs of their community. Justo Gonzalez in his work entitled Three Months with the Spirit, a study through the book of Acts, shares his wisdom for what meeting the needs of a community looks like. He writes, if we're gonna effectively serve the communities around our churches, then we must listen attentively to their words and identify their needs. We have to get to know the community. We have to earn its trust so that we may be told what are the real problems and be invited in to help. And once we begin action, we must continue listening in order to make adjustments as necessary. That is what it looks like to live out a missional hermeneutic of Scripture. That is where we read God's word to respond in faith to who God is and what he's actively doing in the world. We read Scripture not just to increase our knowledge, but to respond in faith to God and his divine mission that he's already on, what we call the Missio Dei, that God is actively working and has invited us to partner with him. And so the way we enter spaces matters. We don't come in as colonizers or conquering heroes equipped with the gospel to save a particular people. We come in imitating the manner of Christ toward all people equipped with the gospel of Christ that is for all people, empowered by the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, sensitive to his leading in those communities. The greatest form of help that was being offered to these people was a church being planted to meet the spiritual and physical needs. And so this is what Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke set out to do. They join God in his just work, and they make their way over to Philippi. And it's there they meet a woman named Lydia. Now, as the rest of our story unfolds, we're going to meet three people. Lydia, a slave girl, and a jailer. And I'm not saying you will 100% identify with one of these people, but I think there's going to be some of your story that resonates with their story and how they encountered Jesus that I've been praying all week that the Lord would wreck you with in the best way possible. So let's talk about Lydia. In verse 13 through 15, this is what we read. On the Sabbath day, we went outside of the gate 
to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me faithful, faithful to the Lord, please come stay in my house. And she prevailed upon us. Now, it was Paul's custom. Whenever he would go into a new city, that he'd go straight to a synagogue. But apparently, in Philippi, there was no synagogue, which meant there weren't the minimum of 10 Jewish men in the city that were required in order to have a synagogue. So in the absence of that place of meeting, Paul decides to find a place of prayer that he mentions in verse 13. Those places of prayer were like small structures that were usually located uh, out by a riverside, where it was possible to practice the, the purification rituals for people who were Jews. So they head out there, and at the riverside, they meet Lydia. She's from Thyatira, but she'd come to Philippi, and what we read about her is that she's crushing it in the fashion game. She's a successful merchant who deals in purple dyes, expensive and extravagant in this culture. She's also a worshiper of God. She's likely a convert to Judaism. I mean, so far, in just a few sentences, we've learned a lot about this woman. She takes all the boxes. Successful, check. Religious, check. Moral, check. Good at what she does, check. But as Paul talked with her, something happened. God opened her heart, it says, to pay attention and hear the gospel for the very first time and to believe. And here's why this detail matters. You see, as quote-unquote good as Lydia was, she still needed Jesus. Jesus still needs to save good people. And she's a solid reminder to us all that no matter how much someone is pursuing God, they still need God to redeem them by the blood of Jesus. And there's a really interesting irony here that, that surrounds Lydia that honestly is my favorite part of this whole story. Remember, first of all, that Paul receives a vision of a man to come to Philippi. However, the first thing that Paul finds in Philippi in response to this man's calling is a group of women. And by God's great design, the first convert in Europe is a woman. And she's an immigrant woman at that. Lydia's not from Europe. She's from Thyatira. She's from Asia Minor. The same Asia Minor that Paul, God told Paul to go through and don't say a word. The divine intention of God is for the gospel to first come to an immigrant woman who's literally found on the margins of Philippian society. This is a testament to God's consistent heart toward the immigrant, toward the marginalized, toward the mistreated. Those who are overlooked and pushed to the outside, God sees and validates not only does he see and validate her existence, he calls her into his kingdom. And what's more, we learn in verse 40 that after Lydia opened up her heart to receive the gospel, she also opened up her home to, to serve as like the nucleus or the home base for Paul and his ministry. And it eventually became the site of the newborn Philippian church. The language in verse 40 heavily implies that Lydia serves as one of the church's key leaders. She's more than a hostess. 
She is somebody who is gifted, who is called, who is commissioned, who is an empowered leader in the Philippian church, a shepherdess who faithfully serves God's people. And later on in biblical history, we discover that there's a church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. Thyatira is a city that Paul never visited in any of his missionary journeys. And there's no biblical record of anyone, any apostle ever going and visiting that place. But could it be that Lydia is the one who brought the gospel back to her hometown? I don't know, but it's a beautiful possibility. Then we pick up in verse 16. Here we meet the slave girl. Luke writes, as we are going to the place of prayer one day, we were met by a slave girl who had, brought a spirit of di- who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And thus she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. As it usually happens, fresh off of a great day of ministry, God doing a great work, some great opposition comes. They cross paths with an enslaved, demon-possessed girl who has a spirit of divination. That is, that that there's a demon who gave her the ability to know things that she otherwise wouldn't have known. Literally, it reads uh, in the original language, she had the spirit of Pythona. Now, in Greek mythology, Pythona, if I'm saying that right, was the name of the python serpent that was said to have guarded the oracle at Delphi. In this culture, there was a priestess who was endowed by this spirit, by this python called the Pythia. She was the oracle. This oracle who was given satanic, this satanically empowered gift of prophecy and on the seventh day of every month would utter out these prophecies and it would amaze people and they would come worship this demonic being. Well, this girl was possessed by a demon who gave her this same satanically empowered ability. And it was an ability that made her masters a lot of money. And as Paul and the crew walk through Philippi, she follows and harasses them for days. But even in her harassment, the demon through this girl tells the truth about them. The worst thing he says about them is, these are the servants of the most high God. He wasn't saying anything false. This demon is rightfully recognizing Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke for who they were. But in saying it this way, he was leveraging their redeemed identity against them, 
leveraging their calling against them, trying to distort the work of God and slander the name of God. And they were okay with it at first. But as time goes on, I love the detail. Luke goes, man, Paul was annoyed. And I get why he's annoyed. I don't, I don't ever want like a, a free advertising endorsement from a demon about my ministry. Like that's not something I'm gonna co-sign on. That's a really strange thing to be all right with. And so one day, as this girl's crying out again, Paul turns, confronts, and casts out the demon. And hear me, in the name of Jesus, this oppressed girl is set free and darkness is driven out. And yet again, there is a huge moment of irony for me. There's no indication in this text that this slave girl converts to Christianity after being delivered. Yet it is unambiguous that the Holy Spirit empowers Paul to set this girl free. So yet again, we must ask the question, why? Why would God set this girl free if she's not gonna turn and believe in him? Simply because of this one reason, because she mattered to God. Because she was made in the image of God and was being subjected to a desolate existence of slavery and extortion and physical and spiritual abuse and bondage. And God as her creator and God as a God of justice who sees and cares about the oppressed intervenes in her story to set her free. And it's this act of God's deliverance of light overwhelming the darkness it doesn't go unnoticed by those in the city, particularly by her owners. These slave owners, they run to the magistrates, and their accusation is not that these young men healed this girl and ruined their business. Their accusation is that they are disturbing the peace. Now, unlike today, that is a very serious offense in the ancient world, one that was a crime punishable by death. In fact, historians have told us that there were cases in which the Roman Empire would punish entire cities, killing thousands of residents for disturbing the peace. So these, these owners are going to the magistrates going, kill them, ruin this movement. But instead of being killed, Paul and Silas are dragged through the streets, severely beaten by a mob, stripped of their clothing and humiliated, and then they're thrown into prison because they, joined, they chose to join God in doing righteous good. By joining God in righteous good, they've opened themselves up to the full weight of society being leveraged against them. Church, doing righteous good, joining God in his just work may very well lead us into difficulty. We live in a world that profits from the suffering of others. Our society was built on this suffering our society still profits from this suffering. And if we live into our redeemed identity as followers of Jesus and stand in opposition to systemic evil, and we call it out as evil, and if we seek to find ways to eliminate it, then the result will be, as it has often been in the past, that those who benefit from the systemic subjugation of others in the margins will resent our efforts and resent us and push back. Good itself is controversial. God's good is controversial. And as Justo Gonzalez points out in his work in Acts, when the church walks in God's good, according to his word and to his character, 
when we bring the ministry of the gospel against systemic evils, it not only threatens the subjugating systems that keep people oppressed, it also disturbs those in power to the point where they'll find reasons for hostility. And church, I need you to hear this. This is dark for Paul and Silas. They're literally brought to the darkest place in Philippi, a hole in the ground at the bottom of a jail. But it is even in these times of darkness and difficulty where God's at work. You see, what's true about God, not only in this story, but throughout all of human history and illuminated for us time and again in Scripture, is that God does not retreat from the darkness. He willingly enters it. That's actually the message and the hope of the incarnation of Jesus becoming human. The light that is Jesus entered into the darkness of humanity. He willingly entered into our darkness. And into the darkness of humanity and our sinful darkness, he proclaims, I am the light of the world. I am the light that overcomes darkness. Believe in me. So if you're somebody who's disoriented in your own darkness right now, Maybe you're wearied with just despair of life and you came in going, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. Maybe you're battling addiction. Maybe you identify with parts of Lydia's story and you were just crushing it and maybe not in the fashion game because that's not DC's bag, but uh, maybe you are just crushing it in whatever your career field is and you're realizing that high you've been chasing, that drug you've been searching for, it, it doesn't satisfy like it used to. That leads down a very dark place, and I need you to hear this morning that Christ has come to shine a light into that darkness, and he doesn't retreat from it. That your darkness is not too much for him. He's not intimidated by it. He's not afraid of it. But he enters into that darkness with you and for you to bring true righteousness, true healing, and true freedom. And his invitation to you is come. Believe. In verse 25, we meet the jailer. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and sing, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights, and they rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Speaking of darkness, this whole scene takes place at about midnight. Midnight for us is a bit different. We have street lights, we have electricity in homes. Midnight in rural areas is terrifying. Imagine being at the bottom of a jail cell with no lights at about midnight. 
You are enveloped in darkness. But that is a good time. Any darkness is a good time for prayer and praise. And it's here where Paul and Silas bring the words of Psalm 42, 8 to life with where it says, at night his song is within me and a prayer to the God of my life. These men begin to worship as a powerful act of resistance to the darkness. And their worship in the midst of their suffering is not only healing to their souls, it's the most effective witness of evangelism to those who are around them. All of a sudden, as their songs echo and reverberate in the darkness of the cells, God causes a great earthquake to open the doors. And this is not an earthquake to set Paul and Silas free. This is an earthquake that comes to set the jailer free. You see, in doing righteous good, that put Paul and Silas in a dark place. And sometimes, hear me, sometimes God allows us to be put in dark places so that we can reach people that we would otherwise never have crossed paths with. Just like Jesus cared for Lydia and her household, the demon-possessed slave girl, Jesus cares for this jailer and has divinely placed Paul and Silas in this dark place to reach this man. And when the jailer wakes up from the ruckus of the earthquake, sees all the doors open, immediately he's overwhelmed with despair. It's so heavy that he believes that death is his only escape. And as he's about to take his own life, Paul screams out, don't harm yourself, man, we're all here. And he rushes in and he frantically asks them, what, what do I have to do to be saved? Now listen, in the context of our story, I don't think he means saved the same way that we mean saved. He was about to take his own life because he was afraid of the retribution for letting the prisoners escape. He was asking what he might be due to be spared punishment for letting a prison, a jailbreak happen. Maybe he's asking for escape so that the ridicule and embarrassment wouldn't stain his life forever and hang over his family the rest of their lives. What must I do to be saved was his question. And Paul and Silas responded with a bigger idea of salvation in mind. And they utter the words that serve as the high point of this entire narrative. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I was up late editing my notes last night. Something I don't like doing on Saturday, I like to sleep on Saturday before I preach. And I wrote this little thing in my notes that I, I don't know, man. I couldn't shake this sentence. Because I really do believe that there's somebody who needs to hear this. Whoever you are, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I want to offer you more, but there's nothing more than I can offer you aside from Jesus. But I'm willing to bet that you've been trying to find life in all sorts of pursuits and it's not worked. And you are struggling you're at the point where you're like, I don't know what's next, man. I've given myself to everything. And you, like the jailer, are crying out, what do I got to do to be saved? Please hear me. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. 
now. That's the promise and invitation to you. Even if you're like, man, I'm a Christian, bro, hear that today. The same Jesus who saved you at that moment in time is sufficient as your Savior now and into eternity. The one who justified you is the one who sanctifies, the one who will glorify you ultimately. It's him. After Paul and Silas say these words to the jailer, we read in verse 32. It says, They spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer, and all who were in his house, family, servants, pets, I don't know, anything who was in his house, they walked with this man in the way of salvation, and that night he and his whole family are baptized. And I love verse 34. That's the capstone of all of this. <laughs> he says, He rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. In my mind, I see him going, can you believe it? I became a Christian? I enslaved and beat, beat and tortured people. Like, this is crazy that God would save me. This man encountered Jesus and couldn't shut up about it. And in the presence of Jesus, his despair gave birth to true joy. By the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, this jailer is made into a generous host. Because look, it says there that he took Paul and Silas the warden took the prisoners home and he washed their wounds and he fed them and he housed them. What a radical display of the power of redemptive transformation, of the gospel taking root in a life. Church, I hope you've been hearing this, but in case you haven't, we have on here everything that's happened in this chapter. All because God said no. Well, we'll be up there in a second. Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke learned how to discern and obey the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because God said no, the gospel reached and spread across Europe for the first time in history. Because God said no, Lydia was saved and baptized and commissioned into serving the Lord. Because God said no, we get to see God's compassionate, dignifying heart for the marginalized and the overlooked as it's put on display. A demon-possessed girl is set free. A jailer and his family are met by and saved by God they previously didn't know. A church is planted by the power of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have been given the letter to Philippians. Church, let me encourage you. Whenever God says no, he's making room in your life to move in ways that you cannot imagine. And his no is the soil in which a better yes grows. And so my prayer has been that we would learn to hear and trust God's no. And then whenever we hear God's no, our eyes would be attuned to see the good, glorious things that God begins to usher in. There is so much more that we could say from this text, but not today. Uh, so this is God's word to us, and it is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, God. God, I'll be honest, I hate sometimes when you say no, but I'm learning to love it. Holy Spirit, would you meet us here now to make us people who are able to receive and trust when you say no? Train us to trust the word of God. Cultivate a, a closeness. Help us to cultivate a closeness with others who can help us discern your will in community. 
God, give us a concern that's outside of ourselves for a people of a particular place. And Lord, let us hear your word as you say, go. Send us, Lord. Make us willing to go and be present and active in our communities or to the people that we have in our hearts. Not to lord it over, but to serve them as Christ serves people. God, would you transform us by the goodness of when you say no. God, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Jesus, for being sufficient. We pray all this in his name.